This is Healthcare Matters on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Healthcare Matters is a program that delves into healthcare policy and issues. The hosts are not medical clinicians and they're not able to offer advice about medical conditions or diseases. You're always encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford Healthcare, hosted by Rebecca Stewart and Elliot Joseph. We're happy you're here. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Healthcare Matters. This is Elliot Joseph, and today we are talking about our brain. The brain is the hub of the entire nervous system. It actually generates more electrical impulses in one day than all of the phones in the world. And when these impulses do not connect, we end up with neurological issues. And today we're going to talk about Parkinson's disease specifically and some of the new treatments that are revolutionizing treatment for patients with Parkinson's. Today, there is no current cure for Parkinson's. Actually, over 1 million people in America alone suffer from this disease. And quite startlingly, uh, there are 60,000 new patients every year in America who receive this diagnosis. That's one person in our country every 10 minutes. And that is just a startling fact. And the good news is that there is progress being made. We're going to talk about medication, how it works, and we're also going to delve into deep brain stimulation, a procedure that some experts believe might one day actually halt this progression of the Parkinson's disease, which has been the holy grail of this progressive and devastating disease. Because as you mentioned, Elliot, until this moment, there there is no cure. Now, symptoms start gradually, sometimes starting with a barely noticeable tremor, but it does get progressively worse over the years. And we were doing some research. We found it was formally discovered, formally named in 1817. James Parkinson's wrote a paper that was called An Essay on the Shaking Palsy. But there is so much more to Parkinson's than tremors. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, patients, as you might expect, are devastated to hear this diagnosis. But today, with our amazing experts, today is about hope. There has never been such promise. And joining us, we have several experts who are leading the charge. Yes, indeed, we do. We're very fortunate to have the clinical expertise in studio today of Dr. Tony DiMarcato, who is the medical director of the Chase Family Movement Disorder Center, which is part of the Hartford Healthcare Iron Neurosciences Institute. And along with Tony, we have Dr. Patrick Senatus, who is a neurosurgeon who is the amazing surgeon performing deep brain stimulation. And a bit later in the show, we'll be joined by Dr. Mark Alberts, who will be calling in, who is the physician-in-chief of the IR Neurosciences Center. So we've got the expertise right here. We absolutely do. And we do want to hear from our listeners this morning. We know you have questions, and this is a great opportunity for you. Do give us a call. Let us know your experience. 860-522-WTIC. That is 860-522-9842. And we wanted to delve right in initially and talk about what is Parkinson's? Why does this happen? What is it? Let's start with Dr. DiMarcada. 
Yes, Parkinson's disease can be defined in terms of the symptoms that you already discussed, the resting tremor. Slowness of movement is actually the main symptom that people will experience, rigidity of the muscles and some balance problems. So that's the clinical definition of Parkinson's. Pathologically, we're talking about loss of brain cells in a particular part of the brain called the substantia nigra, which is the main dopamine-producing part of the brain. So Parkinson's disease manifest because of this lack of dopamine. What is dopamine? What is it? What does it do for those of us in our lives who go about our lives and never think about our brain? Is it working? Is it not? What does dopamine do? So the way that the brain communicates with the body is actually twofold. It communicates chemically and it communicates electrically. When it communicates with the other nerve cells chemically, then we're talking about neurotransmitters that have to uh, produce those signals. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is one of those neurotransmitters that are necessary in order for the brain to tell the nerve cells, to tell the muscles to move. And that lack of dopamine will manifest with issues with mobility. So these patients demonstrate a lower level of uh, natural dopamine in their brain. That's right, because those brain cells get sick, then it's not able to produce its own dopamine to the amount that the body needs. So there's a dopamine deficiency that will then manifest with symptoms. Do we know why it happens? Is there any insight into what causes this? The current theories is that it's a combination of genetic predisposition and environmental toxins. Hmm. We don't know exactly what the pathology is that would cause this cascade of changes that occur in the brain, whether there's some inflammatory component, uh, uh, an autoimmune component. So there are so many theories about that. Mitochondrial dysfunction, but what triggers this cascade of processes is not yet completely defined. This is a great time to actually bring in Dr. Mark Alberts, who is our physician-in-chief of the Iron Neuroscience Institute. So, Dr. Alberts, you are on Healthcare Matters. Good morning. Good morning, Elliot. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning to all the listeners. Good morning. Tell us your thoughts as you look at the brain in its entirety. Um, I know you're so amazed with the brain. You treat the brain. What is your take as you look at sort of what is Parkinson's and what is happening? Well, as Dr. DeMarqueda said a few seconds ago, Parkinson's is really a progressive neurologic disorder that is largely a product of aging. And we know that many of our uh, listeners are old and getting older. It's sort of a trend in healthcare and in society in terms of the baby boomers now moving into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Watch who you're and calling old. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Keep going. That's right. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing, Mark. I'm Nobody's teasing. getting older in here. But our brains yeah. are aging, of course. Yes. There's no question that our, our brains are, are aging, and there's a bunch of what we call neurodegenerative diseases that go along with that aging. Mm-hmm. And it's not just Parkinson's disease, although, as, as Tony said a few seconds ago, Parkinson's is a multifactorial process, as much as aging and degeneration. could be genetics. It could be environmental toxins. But the general trend is that as our brains get older, we are more likely to have Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, other degenerative things that affect our our spine and our spinal cord and, and a whole host of things. So it really is, I believe, a multifactorial process. 
What about the um, this idea, because I'm looking at some of the numbers, and it says about 4% of folks with Parkinson's are diagnosed before the age of 50. Certainly, that is the, um, that's not the typical patient. That is the unusual patient. When you have someone with young onset Parkinson's, is there anything that we know that's sort of making that happen? What's happening in that brain? Do we know? Yes. Well, certainly, certainly in those cases where where you, uh, folks are being involved at a very young age, it does sort of raise, as we say in medicine, a little bit of a red flag that this might be an unusual or an atypical case. And there, I think we tend to look for genetic disorders or family history, a, a genetic influence that's causing that, or some environmental toxins. We discovered um, probably 20 years ago that there are certain toxins in the environment that can produce a picture or a pattern of, of death of nerve cells that produces uh, an illness that, for all the world, looks just like run-of-the-mill Parkinson's disease, with a few important exceptions. So uh, let me make this uh, personal for a minute. Um, I was sharing uh, with our folks in the studio this morning that my mother uh, was a Parkinson's sufferer. And, of course, I'm sitting here, like maybe some of our listeners are, listening to the word genetics. and sure. going... Hmm. Uh oh. What should we be? Those of us who have um, this disease in our family history, how should we be thinking about this? What should we be doing? Uh, Dr. DeMarcada. So the majority of people with Parkinson's disease do not have the heredofamilial form. So that is actually a rare um, occurrence that it's actually hereditary. The um, populations that seem to have a higher incidence of the hereditary form of Parkinson's disease are the European Jews, so the Ashkenazi Jews, and the uh, North uh, African Berbers. But the, by and large, a number of people may have a family history of Parkinson's disease, but that's, that does not mean that they have the hereditary form of Parkinson's disease. Well, that's uh, somewhat of a relief. Um, is there anything that folks like me should be doing? Is there testing? Is there uh, What's your advice? So there are some genetic mutations that have been identified in the clinic. We still are not recommending genetic testing for Parkinson's disease for the very reason that knowing that it is something that might be in your family does not lead to any intervention that you can do to prevent the disease from happening. In the absence of a cure or in the absence of anything that might halt the onset, then we really... Um, would not have a strong impetus to do the genetic testing in most cases. I think living a healthy lifestyle is important for a lot of the neurodegenerative disorders now, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. We find that people who exercise on a regular basis, keep a healthy uh, attitude and keep their minds active seem to make a difference. So um, let me try to tie this to something that may or may not make sense, but it, you know, we're, we're talking so much in the news about concussion-related uh, injuries and the effect on the brain. Uh, so overall trauma impact, uh, is that related in any way to the onset of Parkinson's disease? So when we're talking about sporadic or idiopathic Parkinson's disease, these would not be the instances that Mark is referring to with environmental toxins or trauma mm -hmm. or genetics. So sporadic idiopathic Parkinson's disease is not related to any of these things. But there are what we refer to as secondary Parkinsonisms. Mm -hmm. And secondary Parkinsonisms may be 
caused by trauma. So Muhammad Ali might be an example of that? Yes, except that it has been debated whether he has what we refer to as pugilistic Parkinson's or Parkinson's from boxing. Okay. But um, his physicians believe that he has idiopathic Parkinson's disease. But yes, considering how much trauma he has suffered, I would imagine that there has to be some effect of that as well. My grandfather was a boxer and later in his life developed Parkinson's, but sort of similar to what you're saying, they weren't exactly sure that this was related or not. Before we delve in, could you, if you don't mind sharing a little bit, but do you remember hearing what that was like when your mom was diagnosed, when she told you? And what kind of treatments were even available in that moment? So, um, I don't know if I was fortunate or unfortunate, but I was an age of an age where I was a, a, um, a bit more self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, I remember... I remember it clearly, uh, but I didn't understand it, sure. and I I didn't allow myself to really go there, mm-hmm. uh, admittedly. Um, but what I found over the years, and I want to go to kind of what, what's been the gold standard of treatment for so long, the 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 Cinemet medic. I became intimately familiar with with uh, Cinemet, its dosaging and um, and its impact, both positive and negative, uh, in my mom's case. And I'm curious uh, about where we are today relative to the, you know, we're going to get into deep brain stimulation in a few moments. And that's really where a lot of exciting breakthroughs are happening. But tell us a little bit about um, the... the, either the current or the prior gold standard of of caring for patients with Parkinson's. Dr. DeMarqueda? Yes. Yeah, so when, when you were sharing your story, and I understand the impact that this could have had uh, on your family at that time, but these days when I make the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, I always tell my folks it's not something to fear as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. Because in the past, I think that the treatment options that we had for people with Parkinson's was much more limited. In the last few decades, the research on Parkinson's disease has just exploded, and we now have 24 medications for Parkinson's disease, Mm. not just the Cinemet or Levodopa that you're referring to. The goal being that with the combination of medications that we use, we are trying to prevent the onset of some of the complications that you may have seen your mother go through, where she has to take her cinnamon every three hours and not quite be so good even if she takes it or uh, people develop this uh, symptom called dyskinesias where they have a little bit of wriggling and fidgeting around so with so many medications that we now have we're able to mitigate some of those uh, challenges that people with Parkinson's used to suffer and now I think that the message is always a message of hope and optimism every couple of years new medications Medications come out. We have surgical options that I hope we will talk more about and so much more in the horizon. It is an exciting time. And I do think that this is a perfect opportunity as we talk about sort of the the treatments that were these years ago. And now as we delve in, Dr. Senatus started offering with us only in the last year, we've been offering deep brain stimulation. You are a neurosurgeon. When you see what effects this has. So I would love for you to really delve into what is deep brain stimulation? What is happening? What are you doing? Uh, thank you. The uh, deep brain stimulation is a very, is a very exciting uh, technique um, and suite of techniques that uh, serves to 
disrupt abnormal uh, electrical signals within the brain. Now, we uh, had already started talking about dopamine and neurotransmitters. Well, one thing that uh, the dopamine neurotransmitters do is that they create um, through activating electrical channels in the nerve cells, they allow the cells to communicate electrically over distance. And so what deep brain stimulation does is um, it can disrupt the abnormal communications uh, between uh, between nerves and uh, nodes of nerves, so groups of nerve cells. And so, uh, you know, over time, we've accumulated uh, great uh, information about how the brain works and what parts of the brain communicate with other parts. And uh, we've uh, been able to develop uh, approaches to intervene uh, in different circuits. And so that's what uh, deep brain stimulation does. And, um, you know, I could tell you a whole lot more about that, but, uh, but there is a lot of uh, uh, very exciting things that we can treat. And you then, you go and tell us what exactly is happening when you, you're, you go into the brain, you're using electrodes. Where are you putting them? How do you know where to put them? It's just remarkable. And then the goal for your patients is what? Right, right. That's so, um, so very, very. So, um, you know, as I said, we're uh, you know def- we're building on a a just a mountain of knowledge about the brain. Uh, the specific anatomy of the brain um, has been uh, well uh, mapped uh, to higher and higher resolution over time. And so, uh, and there's been a, a, a mountain of research that. Uh, allows us to understand which which parts of the brain can uh, connect and so um, some of the parts that we're interested in when we are dealing with uh, Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders include nuclei nuclear groups of uh, nerve cells and uh, one of them is the subthalamic nucleus um, the other is the globus pallidus uh, parsinterna and then another nucleus that can be involved is uh, the ventral intermediate nucleus of the thalamus and so these are you know parts that are probably uh, very unfamiliar to uh, most know, of us and, 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 yes <laughs> I have no idea what you're right. talking about <laughs> but um, they're deep structures uh, they're structures that are not that are not on the surface of the brain but um, as deep brain stimulation implies are deep inside the brain and uh, are involved with very uh, ancient uh, uh, sets of circuits that um, allow us to move and uh, allow us to be motivated to move. And so uh, when you, um, and these uh, structures are, are, are small, they're on the order of uh, five millimeters, six, seven millimeters in uh, length, uh, length and width. And so uh, we use very precise uh, techniques, some of the most precise in neurosurgery, uh, to get sub-millimeter accuracy in, in the implantation of these electrodes. So let me ask a question. We are, and we are talking with Dr. Patrick Sanitas, uh, a very highly regarded and well-known neurosurgeon specializing in deep brain stimulation. Dr. Sanitas, when do you actually know which part of the brain you're going into? Do you, do you know that before you open up? Or do you discover that as you go in and, and, and begin to assess the circuitry, so to speak? That, that's an excellent question. Um, we uh, Generally, the assessment um, of a patient uh, is, is multifactorial. We take into account uh, their symptoms in detail. So uh, we need uh, the detailed information uh, from um, a neurologist, a movement disorder neurologist um, like Dr. Di Marcheda. 
we discuss uh, the magnitude of their various symptoms. And remember, Parkinson's uh, manifests in, in a number of ways. The symptoms include tremor, rigidity, stiffness, slowed movement, and uh, gait problems or walking problems. And so the extent and magnitude of these symptoms um, will tend to direct us one way or the other. You know, one instance is that if there are uh, dystonic or, or dyskinetic symptoms, we might want to choose the globus pallidus parsinterna as a target versus the uh, subthalamic nucleus. If if a patient uh, may have other comorbidities, um, you know, we may choose uh, one versus the other. So we're constantly weighing that, and we actually make a plan uh, before we before we go in. Fascinating. No, I we have Don on the line who has been very patiently waiting. Don, you are on Healthcare Matters. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks. Hello, Doctor Demarcada. Hey, Don. Good Hi, to Don. hear from you. So, how could I help? Oh, tell us. It sounds as though you called into our radio show. We are talking about Parkinson's today. Yes, Don. We were talking about the different treatments that we have for Parkinson's disease. And I know that you have been through a surgical procedure, a different one from what Dr. Sanitis was just discussing. So would you be comfortable talking about the surgical procedure that you went through? Certainly. Well, I'm I'm currently on a medication called Duopa, D-U-O. Uh-huh. And uh, it's it's in a liquid form, and it's injected directly into my small intestine by a pump that I wear. And in order to get this set up, uh, a surgeon had to insert a tube into the wall of my abdomen and then work it down into my small intestine. And so I just have to I have this tube, and I just have to maintain it every day and flush it out once a day. Mm. And But that is hooked up to the pump that I was telling you about. And the pump, in turn, has uh, cassettes of uh, medication. And I put a new cassette in every day, and the pump just delivers this medication at a very slow, steady rate. Tell us, though, Don, this took the place of medications, the oral cinemat that we were just talking about earlier in the show. Could you share with us, if you uh, don't mind, how many tablets of cinemat you used to take and um, how this pump replacing that oral doses of cinemat has helped you? Well, I was taking uh, 24 tablets of Cinemet, and I think they were 100 milligram tablets. So that was uh, 2,400 milligrams. And you were taking it every three hours, if I recall. Wow. So we're talking this morning about Parkinson's. We're talking about advances in care. And we had Don on the line talking about another newer kind of procedure that was specific, very similar, Dr. DiMarcada had mentioned, almost like an insulin pump. We're also talking with Dr. Patrick Sedatis about deep brain stimulation. Many, many different kinds of advances in Parkinson's care. We're going to come back in about... Five minutes, and we're going to talk about many more new medications. We're going to talk about newer treatments. We're going to delve into deep brain stimulation even more. If you have Parkinson's, you don't want to miss this. We do want to hear 
from you. Make sure to give us a buzz. That number is 800-966-9842. Thank you to everyone in studio. We will be right back. You are listening to Healthcare Matters. Good morning and welcome back to Healthcare Matters. We're having a great conversation about advances in Parkinson's disease. This is Elliot Joseph. I'm here with my co-host, Rebecca Stewart. We're talking about medication treatment for Parkinson's and trying to understand the fascinating work going on around a surgical procedure called deep brain stimulation. And in fact, if, not if, but when, we might be able to halt the progression of Parkinson's disease. And we have some of the experts who are leading all these changes. Dr. Tony DiMarcheda, a neurologist and director of the Chase Family Movement Disorder Center, which is part of the Hartford Healthcare IRE Neuroscience Institute, along with Dr. Patrick Senatis, a neurosurgeon who is also the surgeon behind this procedure, this important procedure of deep brain stimulation. We're going to start up back on the second half of the show with a patient's story. And my co-host, Rebecca, has got a little bit more on it. For decades, he watched as his body would deteriorate. The diagnosis, Parkinson's. Until he learned about an incredible new procedure at the Chase Family Movement Disorder Center at Hartford Hospital. Deep brain stimulation. This is his story. For years now, Don Steele's life has revolved around waiting, waiting for the medication to kick in. It's at the point where I had to take so much medication. Years ago on vacation, he noticed something didn't feel quite right. His hand wouldn't stop shaking. The summer of 2000, and I was out in the woods, and my hand started to shake a little bit. I just thought it was being, you know, too much of the saw because I was cutting wood. The diagnosis of Parkinson's, a neurodegenerative disorder, was not as devastating as the progression. What started as a minor tremor got much worse. It's like I know I can do, and I know my body will do it, but it won't, it won't do it. Like when I'm starting to walk, I, I just, just put my foot out, but I freeze. Don and his wife Ann had heard about deep brain stimulation, a game changer. Don did his research and decided to move forward. It is a new procedure at Hartford Hospital where doctors implant an electrode in the brain to interrupt and stimulate nerve activity. Weeks later, Dr. Tony DiMarcaida, medical director of the Chase Family Movement Disorder Center, would program that electrode working over several weeks to get it just right. Since he's had the surgery, I've noticed a big difference. For the first time in years, Don Steele is moving ahead, looking forward to what life has in store. That was the story of Don Steele, and again, an amazing survivor of Parkinson's, really doing so much better as we look at what deep brain stimulation can do. Now, one of the things that we'd like to talk about next is this idea that for many years, deep brain stimulation was really considered an end-stage activity, an end-stage procedure. procedure. Excuse me. 
end stage. But what's changing in science is that now this is moving toward somebody having this procedure done far earlier. And I want to talk about the science behind that and then these newer studies that delve into could this possibly halt the progression? And as Elliot mentioned, that's really been the holy grail of Parkinson's treatment. Let's delve into what this procedure is. Dr. Senatus, you talked tremendously well about this articulately. What is happening in the brain for a patient like the one we just heard? Okay. Um, so the just to talk about the the procedure, um, uh, but first, once uh, a patient is identified as a candidate, uh, then uh, we uh, pr- prepare a number of processes, a number of steps. Uh, the first is the uh, implantation um, of the uh, deep brain electrodes, and uh, that requires uh, uh, obtaining high resolution uh, MRIs and CT scans, uh, which um, are data sets that are going to be used for navigation uh, inside the brain. Uh, a patient is uh, brought in uh, and uh, brought into the OR, and uh, th- all that information is used uh, to uh, design very precise uh, targeting uh, uh, trajectories. And then uh, in the in the OR, through very small openings, op- openings less than the size of a dime, we can uh, uh, safely uh, place uh, these uh, electrodes uh, into the target uh, levels with uh, less than uh, submillimeter uh, accuracy. Uh, we also use uh, microelectrode recording so we can actually listen to the activity of the cells as we go through the brain. That's amazing. And, uh, it, it, you know, every time I do it, I, I, I am amazed that we can do that. It is, it is uh, such a uh, beautiful uh, and uh, remarkable thing. Uh, but uh, we can use uh, all these multiple uh, confirmatory uh, data to make sure that we're in the, in the uh, right location. We can actually test the patient. Uh, in the OR, is the patient awake during the procedure? Uh, many many patients um, are awake if uh, if they can tolerate that, and uh, we can ask them to uh, move uh, move their arms to wow. uh, to look at their tremors right in the OR, and you know we get a com- confirmation with that information as well that we're in the right location. Mm-hmm. Once we've done that, we uh, we anchor the uh, the electrodes, and then um, we. Uh, then we'll discharge the patient. We'll watch the patient overnight, make sure that everything is fine. We'll get post-operative uh, imaging, and uh, we'll send the patient home. Um, usually, it's not more than a day uh, day stay in the uh, hospital. And then uh, several weeks later, we'll, we'll bring the patient back, and we'll implant uh, the, a pulse generator. And a pulse generator, basically, uh, think about uh, a, a stopwatch or a pocket watch in, uh, in terms of, of size. We implant this and connect the uh, wires uh, to this, and we can control uh, this stimulator externally. Now, all this is internal. You, no one sees any wires or anything like that. Uh, but uh, we know once uh, the whole system is implanted, now uh, it's time for programming. Yeah. And uh, that's where uh, uh, that's really where the the medicine, the uh, the treatment. So, before we step into the programming piece, I'm curious, Doctor Senatus. What makes one patient a candidate for this procedure and another patient not a candidate? Is there is there clarity about that? You know, I, I think that uh, 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 Tony, if you would, uh, you know, go go through some of those. Uh, yeah, sure. yeah. So I Dr. think Dr. I think that, that yes, and that is actually uh, one of the things that we always um, discuss prior to any surgical procedure. Elliot is. Um, 
among the patients that we have with Parkinson's disease who may do well with deep brain stimulation. In the past, as Rebecca was alluding to, we used to think of the surgical procedure as our last option. If we've tried medications for many years and they're still not doing well, they're having these ons and offs fluctuations. At that point, after maybe a decade or so, we might think of DBS. At this time, however, with the research that has gone on, we recognize that people might actually do better with deep brain stimulation if we intervene earlier. So now we're talking about five years into Parkinson's disease. If somebody has tremors, say, that don't respond to medication, that person is a good candidate for DBS. Furthermore, we're finding that if we intervene earlier with the surgical procedure, People might do well over the long term because now they're not going through the changes that occur right. after many years of Parkinson's disease, dealing with more falls, dealing with uh, certain uh, mobility issues and stiffness of the muscles that they learn to live through. Their posture gets impaired and they become more stooped. And that's because the Parkinson's symptoms are not treated well. So if we do, if we do the surgical procedure earlier and we can make these symptoms better, um, earlier in the course, then that is what they are referring to right now as, is DBS actually a disease-modifying intervention, which is the holy grail of uh, treatment for neurodegenerative disorders. And it's my understanding that the FDA might actually be investigating whether this should be an early-stage treatment versus right now, as you're saying, this later stage. That's right. Even now, though, we are already implanting people earlier on. Dr. Sanitas has taken care of a number of my patients. And although he was very modest in saying that the trick is in the programming, I go back to him and say the trick and the magic is in his implantation of those electrodes right where we want it. Mm -hmm. And these two things go hand in hand for our patients to do as well as they possibly could. And and the the, the important thing I think that we're you know we're trying to convey is that it's it's definitely a multidisciplinary endeavor. It's uh, a team. We, it's a team, and uh, we really uh, uh, communicate, and communication is is important so that we understand the entire uh, th- uh, uh, patient uh, from a three hundred and sixty degree uh, perspective, and then we can. Uh, you know, once we have that information, then we can move forward with the appropriate uh, treatment. So, Dr. Senatus, I want to get a little personal with you and ask sure. you this question because you're a very highly regarded neurosurgeon, been in practice for some period of time. Um, how did you, uh, I don't want to say fall into, but how did you get into the practice of deep brain stimulation? What brought you to it? What uh, hmm. Thank you. Well, you know, it's. Uh, I think everybody comes to it from a, from a different uh, a different set of uh, uh, perspectives. Uh, I I actually was very interested from a very early uh, point, uh, even prior to college, uh, learning uh, about biochemistry. And, uh, you know, learning how, you know, how these, uh, biomolecules, uh, interact. And, and what fascinated me was I think at one point some, uh, one of my, uh, teachers uh, stated that the, that, that biochemistry kind of uh, can underlie thinking, moving, and, uh, and, and, and other processes of that type. And, and, uh, you know, I, I got, uh, my, uh, my degree in uh, biochemical sciences and neurobiology at Harvard. And then, um, I did a, ended up doing a PhD, uh, where I actually, uh, investigated, uh, the interactions of individual cells electrically and chemically. And, uh, actually recorded, did electrical recordings from uh, individual cells 
that um, are involved with movement disorders, such as Parkinson's and essential tremor. And uh, it was uh, a natural uh, evolution from there to, uh, to, to train in neurosurgery. And then, you know, from that point, over the last 30 years or so, uh, I've been involved in one way or the other uh, dealing with uh, uh, movement disorders or um, neuromodulation. And so uh, it's been a very uh, rewarding uh, uh, path. And now I would like to take that question then to Dr. DeMarcada. If you could sort of answer that same question, and what led you to this journey? It's, very, uh, again, a very specific movement disorders journey. The uh, career in neurology was sort of like, by default, the nerds in medical school <laughs> choose to go to <laughs> neurology. It's not a very favored subspecialty. And when I was in neurology, I fell in love with my first Parkinson's patient. Um, the population is just, they're intelligent, they're uh, appreciative, and they are good people. And it is a personality that we find again and again when we meet another patient that it seems to underlie, uh, whether it's cause or effect, but it seems to be an underlying personality that people with Parkinson's disease are upstanding citizens, wonderful members of the family, good spouses, um, intelligent people, professionals, and it's just extremely rewarding to be able to serve them. And she's spoken a little bit about this, the personality who does develop Parkinson's is sort of you to have talked about him or her as risk averse, many, pro, many professors. That's right. Um, a lot of doctors, lawyers, teachers, hmm. engineers. Highly educated. Yes. Really? And that seems to be the common thread. And then you've talked about a lot of patients, actually, once they've developed it, also develop some interesting artistic tendencies. Yes. So the dopamine neurotransmitter, again, and what it is responsible for. So the reason for the profile or the personality that we believe uh, we are seeing is because of this dopamine deficiency, making them risk averse, as Rebecca is saying, because dopamine is the adventure neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. So people who are high in dopamine are going to do all sorts of crazy things when they were kids they may not stay in school somebody who's a little low in dopamine will stay in school follow the straight and narrow go right through to medical school or law school or engineering school and will never break the rules however when they develop parkinson's disease and now we're giving them dopamine medication so now they're high level dopamine and they become a little bit more creative they can engage in more um adventurous things so what we're finding is a lot of our patients who are taking medications will um become actually quite prolific in artistic ways so a lot of painters now and potters and and quilters and the wealth of of talent uh, just comes out and I have people who are making poetry and it's just beautiful every time they share that with us it, it's really I mean it's just I, I'm here I'm amazed by what you're describing and again it reminds us how little we know about how the brain actually works right I mean so you you, you can connect those observations with but but the science behind it yeah. we don't know correct 
Uh, well, yes. I think that our understanding is that every neurotransmitter in the brain and every part of the brain, as uh, Dr. Sanitas was referring to earlier, is responsible for certain things. And if there's either disease that affects that part of the brain, that there will, there will be certain outcomes. If there is a medication that alters the way that part of the brain functions, then there may be other outcomes. Right. So these are the things that we are seeing as we learn more about neurologic diseases. So- Thank you. And as we talk about the wonders of deep brain stimulation, I feel a responsibility to our audience to also talk about the risks of a procedure like this. Dr. Senatus, can you uh, give us a little insight into that? Please? Absolutely. Uh, no, that, uh, that is a very important point. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, the, uh, the risks are low of, uh, of, DB, of DBS, uh, but uh, it is brain surgery. And so when, uh, when one undergoes brain surgery, there, there are uh, risks of stroke, of, of bleeding, um, uh, of uh, ch- uh, personality uh, changes. But once again, we're talking you know, very low uh, risks. Uh, in fact, uh, when we implant uh, an electrode in, into the brain, it really doesn't, uh, doesn't destroy cells. It's uh, the... Uh, the placement is is uh, so slow and smooth that it actually displaces uh, displaces uh, neurons, and so uh, you know. For, for, and fortunately, uh, the uh, the risks are are low enough uh, that um, the benefits can significantly uh, outweigh the. Now, Doctor Senatus, they're also you're talking about using deep brain stimulation for other things we've spent the hour talking about it for parkinson's for movement disorders but you were talking about now we're investigating all sorts of different reasons and and perhaps successes with deep brain stimulation can you share a little of that oh yes absolutely i mean it is truly an exciting time um their uh, deep brain stimulation uh has been has been indicated but not uh, fda approved yet for for a number of other conditions Uh, for instance tourette's syndrome uh, for epilepsy, for depression, for weight control. So uh, one of the things we were talking about is dopamine. Um, one of the analogous pathways of, of the movement disorders is, um, the, is involved in the circuit that can cause addiction. And so, for instance, uh, when patients do cocaine or other things, um, that can co-opt the dopamine the dopamine pathway and so um it's a little bit lower down uh we report uh, uh for the movement disorders it's more of a dorsal uh dopamine pathway for a, for a different part of the brain a different part sure. of the way for the uh addiction pathways it's more ventral it's this it's the analogous pathway but just lower lower down closer to the more Primitive parts of the but how remarkable as we are in the midst of this opioid crisis for another option right. as we all have been talking about the fact these pathways of the brain are changing yeah, yeah we're learning a lot every day um i'm going to come back to the notion of the treatment around parkinson's um that most as i understand that most of what we're doing and what you're doing with your clinical expertise and care of patients is to slow down the progression of the disease. And as I understand it, there's at the moment no cure. And I'm curious about the line of sight 
on the possibility of a cure and where this might be headed. Uh, either of you uh, have a, a perspective about this. Dr. DiMarcheda. Yes, so there's a lot of research going on in Parkinson's disease and always a lot of hope that we may actually find uh, an intervention that may slow down progression or halt the disease. Uh, the interest right now is uh, regarding alpha-synuclein therapies. And again, big words in neurology are not on common, but alpha-synuclein is the protein that we find in the uh, pathologic hallmark of Parkinson's disease. So it's an abnormal, if it accumulates or misfolds and it's uh, too much in the brain, then it causes disease, including Parkinson's. So the premise right now is if we can stop that protein from misfolding, or we can decrease the amount of alpha-synuclein that is being produced abnormally in somebody with Parkinson's disease, we may be able to halt progression. So there's a number of research studies that are currently ongoing to try to find a vaccine or an intervention that will clear that protein or will just stop that pathology from uh, occurring. Dr. Senatus. Yeah, there's, uh, there's also uh, thoughts that uh, stimulation can actually cause changes uh, in the nerve cells themselves. So nerves, uh, nerve cells, neurons uh, can adapt by starting to make different proteins or express different proteins. And so that's, a, that's an interesting, uh, uh, it's called neuromodulation, electrical neuromodulation. And so the effects on the abnormal circuits, so not only can can the stimulation interrupt abnormal circuits, but it can affect the abnormal circuits. And uh, so, and there have been studies that, sh that, that show that uh, in patients with deep brain stimulation, uh, it can slow the progression or the, uh, well, the progression of tremors to uh, another limb. Mm. And so um, I think we need more data, right. you know, for this, right. but uh, but it's very promising. So this morning we're talking uh, a lot about the, the traditional approaches. This is my, my final question for the morning, although I could go on for quite some time. The traditional approaches to, to treating um, brain disorders like Parkinson's, whether it be medication or surgical intervention, what, what's the advice and counsel for patients and family members about you know, the notion of, uh, I'll use air quotes around, complementary uh, approaches, medicine approaches to the treatment of patients? That's Dr. something DiMarcata. she believes in so strongly. That's right. So in, in conditions where there are so many other symptoms that are occurring beyond the tremor and slowness and the physical symptoms, people with Parkinson's disease have what we refer to as non-motor symptoms, sleep problems, depression, anxiety, uh, constipation. So these symptoms are not always addressed. And I think that what we need to recognize that for someone with Parkinson's to do well, we really have to treat the whole person. Yes. And this concept of um, not just piecemealing and, and treating one particular symptom, but keeping the whole person well is the message that we want to, to give. That in order for the Parkinson's disease to do well, the whole person needs to be healthy. So exercise and nutrition, a balanced diet, a healthy diet, integrative medicine approaches like right. acupuncture, massage therapy, Reiki therapy, all of these things potentially can help a person feel better, uh, move better, do better overall, decrease stress. 
Right. This is, and this is the reason why we created the IR Neurosciences Institute at Hartford HealthCare to ensure, as you've heard described this morning, a multidisciplinary team approach comprehensive That's uh, right. for patients. Comprehensive, integrated care. I love seeing the two of you as you care so passionately about your patients. What brought you to this field of study is exactly what brought you to us today because coming in on your on your day to talk about something you're so passionate about. We are so fortunate to have these great folks with us. This has been a great hour as we have delved into Parkinson's. This has been Healthcare Matters. You can always subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. This is Healthcare Matters. This has been Healthcare Matters, sponsored by Hartford HealthCare. Tune in next month as we continue to discuss the status of healthcare, determine what works and what doesn't, and work to bridge the gap. Healthcare Matters on WTIC, News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're-